Our scripture reading today is from Micah 4, 6 through 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Heather, for reading that passage for us this morning. We continue in this series on Micah. We've been doing a chapter a week, seven chapters. We're just past the halfway point today with chapter four. So there's a, uh, well, I'll hold it up. Is this book familiar to anybody? This, uh, this is called The Valley of Vision. This is, it's, it has, it's kind of a terrible book cover uh, aesthetically, but it's one that from across the room you see and you're like, oh, that's The Valley of Vision. Um, what this is, is it's a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions that have been assembled by a guy named Arthur Bennett. And um, I've, I've been aware of this book for a while now and, and have read it, uh, read parts of it there. And what he's done, uh, what Bennett has done is he's taken writings of old Puritans and he's um, kind of condensed their words into sort of a poetic form and then arranged them into little, little prayers uh, that are single page each. And they're topically arranged. It's really a beautiful, beautiful book. One of the things I love about it is that it's this mix of, um, of theological heft and beautiful language. And uh, I'm into both of those things. And so, uh, so anyway, there's a poem in here, or a prayer in here. It's one of my favorites uh, in the book called Confession and Petition. And one of the things that happens in this particular prayer, confession and petition, is that it does both of those things, where it has a lot of theological substance to it, um, and then also really beautiful, beautiful language. Um, and, and it's a prayer about how God interacts with our imperfect prayers. And so I'm going to read a part of it, and we're, we're going to have it on the screen because I think it's good to see, see these words. But this, this is one of my favorite parts of this whole book. Uh, he says this, he says, I thank thee that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and have been given a wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. I thank thee for thy wisdom and thy love, for all the acts of discipline to which I am subject, for sometimes putting me into the furnace to refine my gold and remove my dross. Wow, that's substance. Uh, what a posture 
to take before the Lord. This, this language, I, I have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. That line, wow. Because uh, it, it, it's not, you, th- you would think that it would be, I've longed for Egypt and been given a promised land. Nope. It's I have longed for Egypt and you, God, gave me instead of that the wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. There's so much to talk about that I could go on all morning, but I want to tie it into the passage um, that Heather just read for us. Uh, and, And so we're going to do that as we go. If I were to survey mature Christians in this room, people who have walked with the Lord for a while, and if I were to ask you, uh, what, what are the deepest, how have you grown most deeply? What's been the circumstances through which you have grown most deeply? How's that come about? I'm sure that we would talk about habits of reading scripture and prayer, being a part of the local church, being in community with people, serving. I know that those things would come up, but, but I would predict that the overarching theme that would run through every testimony about spiritual maturity would involve suffering. Suffering. The furnace. It's often how we grow. And it's not for the faint of heart to talk about this. I mean, Jesus said it. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And then he said, take heart, because I have overcome the world. But one of the things that he's saying when he says, in this world, you will have trouble, is suffering comes with the place. It's part of it. Because we do so much of our growing and maturing through suffering, we must examine how we then receive the hardships that come our way. How do we receive those things that are hard to walk through? So when you suffer, do you consider that to be a failure on God's part? That he is somehow not holding up his end? that he's doing wrong by you in some way. We had a deal, you know. How do we reconcile the kindness of God with the difficulties of life so that when we pray to him, we can thank him for, quote, sometimes putting me into the furnace to refine my gold and remove my dross. So let's walk through this text. We're going to read it again a little bit at a time. Micah is one of those books that certainly uh, rewards a second reading. Um, And so verse 6 and 7, I'm going to read just some and talk about it a little, read and talk like we've been doing. Uh, Verse 6 says this, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So following three chapters of judgment, we we come now finally to this, which is a chapter filled with hope. Still judgment, but hope. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor in the Philadelphia area, um, 
has a commentary, I have a commentary in my office, which I, th I think is really just a collection of sermons that he's preached on Micah in the past. But he says this about this passage. He said, Micah has, so by the time we get to chapter four, he says, Micah has been castigating the leaders of the people for their failure to do what they had been commissioned to do. Judges had failed to give justice. Prophets had failed to speak the true word from God. Rulers had ceased to rule. And as a result, the kingdom was in chaos and even greater judgment was coming. But this was not the final word. Jerusalem will fall. The people will be scattered. But God is going to regather the people and rule over them again from Mount Zion. So the Lord is going to bring his people home. Scattered and limping though they may be. He will carry them. As we read in Isaiah 40, 11, he will carry them like a shepherd. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. This is the language here. This, this is the image of the Lord scattering and then gathering and carrying. And so we can, we can breathe it in. We can breathe in the hope that awaits God's people. It's here. It's here. We have a shepherd. And do you know what we need? We need a shepherd. <laughs> Jesus looked at Jerusalem at the end of his life. He looked at Israel and he said, oh, you're like a sheep. You're like sheep without a shepherd. I have longed to gather you. I've longed to gather you. We need a shepherd to lead us. Someone who can handle the danger. Someone who knows the way. It's good to be in the care of a shepherd. He goes on, verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain sees you like a woman in labor. The, the watchtower of the flock is a reference to Jerusalem, the city. Um, if you've been to Israel, you know that Jerusalem is the high point, that to go to Jerusalem is to go up to Jerusalem. And so in that sense, it's this watchtower. It watches over the land. It watches over, over Israel. It's the city that watches over God's people, and then it also tethers them to their center of worship, which is the temple. And so Micah is saying, to Jerusalem, God will restore the promises that he made to King David. There will be a kingdom. That will never end. A restoration is coming. But as for now, he's saying, Jerusalem is in a panic. They're a city under siege. The people are crying out. Have they no king, the Lord asks? The Lord has long promised to his people that he would be their king. And they rejected him as their king because they wanted an earthly king like all the other nations around them had. And so the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, tell them they'll get their king, but it's going to be bad. It's going to be trouble. It's coming. And here we're, we're in the trouble, right here in this passage. Their counselor, a reference again to their earthly king, is of no help at all. Why? Well, commentators suggest that this statement, has your counselor perished, um, is the term I would use is redemptively sarcastic. Kind of, where's your counselor? You have a king. 
Where is he? In other words, what he's saying is, for all your king's maneuvering and for all of his supposed wisdom, he has not yet found a way to deliver you from the disciplining hand of God. Not that he hasn't found a way to deliver them from trouble, but he has not found a way to deliver them from the disciplining hand of God. Listen, it's one thing to seek to be delivered from evil. Jesus tells us when he gives us the Lord's Prayer to to ask this, deliver us from evil. But it is another thing entirely to seek to be delivered from the disciplining hand of God. He will do what he will do. Sometimes we're in the furnace. And sometimes the furnace we're in is not to destroy us, but is to refine our gold and remove our dross. Uh, One of the things I think, if I were to continue my survey of mature followers of Jesus, and I ask the question, is the God that you first believed in did he turn out to be the God who actually is? Uh, Or is the God that you know now not who you thought he was going to be? Sometimes when we go through suffering, we hit difficulties. We experience the refining, disciplining hand of God in our lives. He turns out to be not who we thought he was. I thought we had a deal. I thought I would do this and then you would do that. And now, My world's on fire. Part of the the journey of maturing spiritually is learning how to not then hold God accountable for failing to be what we want him to be, but is instead learning how to live in the posture of receiving from him who he is and saying, Lord, change me, change my mind, change my heart so that I would know you and I would love you as you are, not as I imagine you to be. Verse 10 continues. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. Okay, as I was studying verse 10 this week, uh, I had a moment where I had to do what I just did there, take my glasses off, put them on the table, and have my mind blown for a second. If you're a Bible nerd, get ready. This is going to be fun. If you're not a Bible nerd, I hope to make you one in the process of saying what I'm about to say. So, he says, Rise and groan, O daughter of Jerusalem. How should God's people respond to the predicament that they are in? Micah says, Rise and groan like a woman in labor. Feel, feel the hurt of it. Because what's coming isn't going to be easy. And then he says what's coming. And this is wild. He says, You shall go out from the city, Jerusalem, dwell in the open country, the wilderness, and then you shall go to Babylon, captivity. What is that? That, my friends, is the exodus in reverse. They'll be taken out of Jerusalem, the holy city and the promised land. And then they will camp in the wilderness. And from there they will be led back into captivity as they were in Egypt, only this time it will be in Babylon. And it is the great undoing of Israel and Judah. The Lord is taking 
everything from them that they've looked to for security that isn't him. And he's doing it in a way that for them is saturated in meaning. They see it. They hear it. They understand that what Micah is describing is the undoing of what they've regarded as the best story that they have to tell about themselves. And that is their exodus from tyranny. It would literally be like playing the tapes of the exodus backward from the promised land to the wilderness to being slaves. And it's going to hurt. And they're going to feel it. I'm happy to report that's not the end of the sermon. It gets better. Because we come to the heart of what we need to see and what we're going to focus on for the rest of the time. And that is this language. From there you will be rescued. Again, this is not for the faint of heart. God will intervene, he says. From there you will be rescued. This is the rest of verse 10. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God will intervene when they have at last become truly helpless. And he will redeem them and he will rescue them. And he will also pry everything from their hands that they cling to for life apart from him. But then he will rescue them. Babylon is a chastisement, but it's not the final judgment. Commentator and Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke said this. He said, the kingdom of God comes through trial. And so Israel must pass through trial, leave the security of the old city, camp in the open field, go to Babylon to become the new Israel. The darkest land will become the place where the daylight of the new age dawns. And so here's the rub. They're not rescued and redeemed in Jerusalem. They're rescued and redeemed in Babylon. And so it is that often it's in the stripping away of our comfort and in the stripping away of our security that we find God doing his deepest work in us. I have longed for Egypt and I have been given a wilderness. Or as Job said in the second chapter of Job, should we accept only good from God and not adversity too? James said it like this in James 1, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness then have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering gives you something. So I want to interact with this idea of, okay, often the way that it goes is we do our deepest, most spiritual, most of our spiritual growth happens not in the place of comfort, but in the place of affliction, in the place of suffering. It's not in Jerusalem, it's in Babylon. And that's where he rescues us. So let's just kind of interrogate this a little bit. I'm gonna throw out some questions and then respond with 
scripture. We may hear this and we may say, okay, so, but what if, what if, for the life of me, I can't make sense of what God is doing? I'm looking at it from every angle that I can and I just, I don't know why God is doing this to me. Isaiah 55 tells us, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Okay. Is that good news though? Is that good? Is it really good? Is that good news to know that your ways are not my ways? Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. God always acts on your behalf. Always. He always acts for your good. And he does it perfectly every time. Okay. What if I can't see any end in sight, though? How long, O Lord? 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. The glory that awaits us when our faith is in Christ is unimaginable. It's unimaginable. That's the end in sight. That's the end in sight. And for those whose faith is in Christ, it's coming. It's coming. A glory that is unimaginable. And what it means is your suffering is not wasted. Your suffering isn't wasted. (coughs) Nothing is wasted. We only see a fraction of what God is actually doing in us. We only see a fraction of what God is actually doing around us. Paul wrote in Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay. Okay, but what then? What do I do with that? Do I just passively endure the sufferings of Babylon? Just take it? No. Proverbs 25, 2. It is the glory of God. It, it is the glory of God to conceal things. It is the glory of kings to search things out. What's the wisdom there? Search him out. Search him out in your trials. In your trials, search for him. Draw near to him. Seek his face. Last question. Okay. Nothing is wasted. I will draw near to him. I will seek his face. I will search him out. What if? What if he is silent? Wait. Isaiah 8. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. And I will hope in him. Hope anyway even if he's silent, 
in his silence, he is being perfectly good to you. You see through a glass darkly. Then you will see face to face. Hope anyway. That's what hope is about. Hope is about longing for what we don't yet have. Listen, I packed a lot of scripture into this message to remind us that the Bible is a book that looks us dead in the eye when it comes to our suffering. God's word knows that we suffer and it doesn't try to explain it away. Not at all. Instead, what you have is the full testimony of scripture calls us time and time and time again to turn to the only one who can lead us well, who can shepherd us well in a world that is broken, and that is Christ. As Peter said in John 6, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. When the Lord sent his people into the furnace of Babylon, it was to draw from that furnace the refined gold of a remnant, a people kept. If your faith is in Christ, here is a promise. It's a promise. In fact, it's a greater, stronger, more certain promise than any other, and it is this, the Lord will rescue you. He will rescue you. You are not bound for an eternity of trouble. You are bound for an eternity of peace. You are not destined for a life of lack. You are destined for a life of provision. You are not looking at an eternity of affliction. But you are looking at an eternity of wholeness of body and mind and spirit and heart. This is the work of Christ in you. In the meantime, though you walk through the furnace now, remember that it is from Babylon that you will be rescued. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. Let's pray. Lord, one of the honors of being a pastor is that I am aware of a lot of the affliction and suffering in the lives of the faces looking back at me when I preach a sermon like this. Stories of grief and loss, vocational hardship, medical trials, broken relationships, addictions, And Lord, part of the reason we gather as a church is to be together with other fellow sufferers, to turn to you together and confess that we need you and to receive the promises from your word that tell us that we have you, that you've given yourself for us and to us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to say, in the words of the prayer that we read earlier, go on with your patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. Lord, fit us to accept that what you bring into our lives is because you're working all things together for the good of those who love you.
And I pray this in the matchless name and in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who is the one who rescues and redeems. Amen.